uh, before we get started this morning, uh, need to make a, a quick announcement about a change in our uh, Lord's Supper and the, their, consequently our fellowship meal, the Lord's Feast. It will now be held December the 17th. December 17th. So if you want to host it, please see Mrs. Monk. And uh, so we, you can arrange with her. And um, so we know for sure that we, by God's grace, is again uh, December 17th. That's when we do our communion service and our love face. Again, if you want to host it, please see Miss Robin. Okay, let's pray. I'm and everlasting. Father, we are thankful this morning that you are an awesome God. Powerful, loving, caring, an omnipotent God, eminent and transcendent God. You are an omniperspective God. You are aware of every and any place. We are blessed that you, we are your children. Because you have chosen us according to your good pleasures. So it is our highest privilege that we are called your children. What an honor you bestowed upon us. What a blessing. For this, we thank you. We know we are not capable really of praising you in proportion to what you do for us or your love that you have shown to us. However, we join the elect in heaven to say to you, may all honor, glory, dominion, power, majesty belong to you, for you deserve them. We continue to wonder that you will even accept praises from eighteen persons like us. We thank you for your son Jesus Christ. We have gathered this morning in obedience to your instruction that we should do so. To be encouraged, especially as we see the evil days draw near. We know we are in tumultuous times, but at the same time we are confident that underneath are the arms that sustain us. So for this reason, as we have gathered, we realize that the human mind is incapable of comprehending anything that is spiritual. For this reason, we ask that God, the Holy Spirit, who is the perfect communicator, will enable us to hear precisely what you have for us this morning. This is our request in Christ's name. Amen. We're continuing with looking at doctrines that the apostle had laid out. And now we will be moving to the section that we started really, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 14 through 19. It reads, 1984 edition of the NIV. Now the body is not made up of one part, but of many. If the fool should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body. 
it will not for that reason cease to be part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body. It will not for that reason cease to be part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of smell or hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But if, in fact, God has arranged the parts in the body, every one of them, just as He wanted them to be. If they were all one part, where would the body be? Now we mentioned that we're dealing with the issue of the unity and diversity in the Church of Christ. So we continue with a second responsibility that you have regarding the overall message, which, which is unity and diversity are essential in the body of Christ, that is the Church of Christ. Now the second responsibility that we stated last week is that you should focus on facts stated about members of the Church of Christ. There are facts. In fact, we say there are really five facts involved that you should think about, you should meditate about when you think about this unity and diversity in this section. Now we have considered the first two facts to help you understand the importance of unity and diversity in the body of Christ. The first is that the church of Christ consists of several members. The second is that no believer can be separated from the body of Christ. That is from the church. Now we consider the implication of this second uh, fact as it concerns the security of believers' salvation. That we did last week. So we proceed now with a third fact. A third fact to help you understand the importance of unity and diversity in the body of Christ is that each member is necessary for the functioning of the local church of Christ or the universal church of Christ. Each member is necessary. I didn't say indispensable, necessary. Now this fact implies that the spiritual gift of each believer is needed for the proper functioning of a local church. Now we derive this fact from the analogy that involves the body and its past that the apostle wrote in verse 17 in two rhetorical questions. He makes his point using two rhetorical questions. The first rhetorical question is given in the first part of verse, of verse 17 of 1 Corinthians chapter 12. That it says, If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? Now the apostle says a condition that is hypothetical. First because the word if is translated from a conditional particle in the Greek that is used in different ways. For example, the Greek word 
is used as a marker of condition that exists in fact or hypothetical. So that it's simply translated if. In our, in our passage of 1 Corinthians 12 verse 17, it is used to set up a condition that is hypothetical. And that what is stated will never happen. Will never happen. Now the body has many parts. So there's no way that the body will consist of only the eye. Now the conditional clause, if the whole body were an eye, is intended though, not merely as an analogy that involves body parts, but to convey that the church of Christ could not consist of those with one single gift. That is, where everyone has the same spiritual gift. That is to say, think about it. He said, no, the church of Christ cannot contain just one, you know, all of them with one gift, the same gift, because that would be uniformity. That to tell us that's not going to happen. So the apostle is using it in his analogy here. Uh, but today he's talking about I and so forth. But really, he, he is concerned with the fact that each believer cannot have the same spiritual gift uniformly. In other words, we have to have different gifts. In other words, now the eye is a part of the body. It's an organ of sight. So the apostle is concerned with what the eye does as a part of the human body. Consequently, he was concerned with the functioning of each spiritual gift in the body of Christ. Again, as I've mentioned before, you have a spiritual gift. Your gift is necessary for the functioning of this local church and the church of uh, Christ at large. You may say, I don't know what it is. I've already said, you don't have to know per se. All you have to be sure is you know the truth. Controlled by the Holy Spirit, it will function. So it is our assertion that the apostle certainly was thinking of the functioning of members of the body of Christ when he wrote the conditional clause, if the whole body were an eye. Now this is because of the rhetorical question he wrote in the conditional clause. Now the rhetorical question of verse 17, it says, where would the sense of hearing be? Now since the conditional clause contains an organ of the body, the eye, we will expect the apostle to mention another organ of the body. In this case, the ear. As he referenced in verse 16, but that is not what the apostle wrote. Instead, we have the words of the NIV, the sense of hearing. Again, like I say, he mentioned eyes. We would have expected to hear ear, but they didn't. Now, the expression, the sense of hearing, of the NIV, is translated from a Greek word that may mean hearing, as it is used to describe faith, that 
results from hearing the word of God as we read in Romans chapter 10 verse 17. Romans chapter 10 verse 17. We're going to be noticing something here uh, where a word can have several meanings and then the issue is why use a particular meaning in a translation, for example. Romans chapter 10 verse 17 reads, Consequently, faith comes from hearing the message and the message is heard through the word of Christ. That, that the hearing here is a Greek word. Now the Greek word may also mean hearing, as such, but it could refer to what is hard. What is hard? As that is the way it's used in our Apostle Paul's question to the Galatians who were gravitating to the law as a means of salvation or a means of justification as we read in Galatians chapter 3 verse 5. Galatians Galatians chapter 3, verse 5. Here the translators of the NIV translated the Greek word as what was had or what is had. So we read here, Does God give you his spirit and work miracles among you because you observe the law or because you believe what you heard? See, here the actually is because of hearing. But here they translated what you had, which is the meaning uh, showing the content of what somebody uh, listened to. Now, interesting though, the Greek word may mean ear as the organ by which someone hears something as it is used in Apostle Paul's description of the attitude of some believers regarding the truth of God's word in the last days. Something you can definitely believe and know for fact it is taking place right now. This is what he used that word in Second Timothy chapter 4 verse 3 to describe the conditions of people in the latter days towards the word of God. It is for the time will come when men will not put always sound doctrine. Now notice, although you say men here, men and women, believers. We're not talking about unbelievers right here. We're not talking about unbelievers. Now that's one, to me, this is one of the saddest things that we're facing today in Christianity is that the, uh, most Christians have gone to a point where, as what I call it, 
menu-driven Christians. And the smart unbelievers are picking that up and throwing it at the faces of Christians, how hypocritical we are. In other words, we select the portion of the Bible we want to obey, and they ignore the other part, as if it came from a different source. We can do that, and call ourselves genuinely reflecting Christ. If you're going to reflect Christ, you have to follow his teaching. You can't pick the one you like, and run with it, and still, you know, leave the other one. A smart unbeliever will confront you with it. Because of what, what I call today, we don't have a sense of shame today. So we will, they do some wrong, they still, it doesn't matter. They just go ahead. But if you have a sense of shame and somebody catches you, that you are a believer, you're being hypocritical, it will cause you to lower your head and go back and think, rethink about yourself. But that's not happening. Because we've lost the sense of shame. Which again is part of what the Lord said will happen. So here it says, they will not put up with sound doctrine. Part of putting it up is being able to sit here for an hour or so, or two hours, depending on. And focus and don't let your mind go into whatever toilet you want to go into. Yeah, so it says, will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires. They will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. So that's the issue. What here of course the Greek word is translated ears instead of hearing. But the issue though is people don't really want the truth anymore. I mean, when I say people, I mean believers. They've just given all this facade to it. And therefore, if they come and hear a pastor, for example, who teaches and holds their, holds their feet to the fire, as we say, they look for another place where that doesn't, it's not taking place. That's what this is saying. They're looking for those they can gather who will tell them what their itching ears want to hear. Anyway, in our passage of 1 Corinthians 12, verse 17, the Greek word means hearing. That's, of course, a faculty of hearing that enables us to perceive words or perceive sounds in this particular case. Now, a person may ask then that since our Greek word also has the meaning of ears, how can we settle on this meaning of hearing in our verse? So these are the things that we have to contend with. Now, depend if you get a different English version, they may not have done that. And so somebody will say, well, that's why I don't like you, your Bibles, because you're not consistent. And they don't realize it's a matter of human beings translating words the, way, the one they think is best. The Greek word doesn't change. Is trying to understand it in the English that what we get into trouble and so on. Or other languages, of course. So the question is, since the Greek word means hearing, and also means ear, so why do, why do the NIV, for example, use meaning hearing here? Now, of course, to me, that's a legitimate uh, question. The answer, though, is that if the apostle wanted to use the meaning of ear 
in its first use since he uses Greek word twice in this, in this verse. If he wanted here in the first one, we would have expected him to have used uh, use a different Greek word that means here. See, we said it because the apostle referenced the ear in verse 16. But he used a different Greek word. That, that Greek word is one that is predominantly used in the New Testament with a meaning ear as an, uh, an auditory organ. Now, in, the, in fact, really, of the 36 occurrences of that Greek word, us, the translator of the, of the NIV rendered it ear 34 times out of the 36. Now, although the other two passages that they translated literally the meaning ear is more literal translation of the word. Now, so you get the idea that if the apostle wanted to understand, uh, for us to understand the first usage of the Greek word in verse 17 as ear, as an ordinary auditory organ, that he would have used the same word that he used in verse 16. Now, since he did not, we believe then that he is concerned with the sense of hearing than the organ itself. Now the second time the apostle uh, used the Greek word we have uh, that we have considered here in verse 17, the word has the sense of ear as an auditory organ. Now that we will explain when we look at it later. So anyway, it is our contention that the apostle was more focused on the function of the ear in the first usage of the Greek word considered that we have considered in verse 17. Thus, the rhetorical equation of 1 Corinthians 12, verse 17, where would the sense of hearing be, demands the answer nowhere, implying that if the body consisted only of the eye associated with the sight, then the body will not have the function of hearing. So the point of the apostle, as we have indicated, is that if there is no diversity of spiritual gifts, the church of Christ will be limited in its function. If there is no diversity of gifts, if we all had the same gifts, then the church of Christ will be limited in its function. Now, so the apostle continued his point that it is necessary for diversity to exist in the body of Christ for its proper functioning through a second rhetorical question that is preceded by a conditional clause still where we're looking at. Look at verse 17 again. It says, if the whole body were an, eye, uh, were an ear. That's what he begins with. If the whole body were an ear. Now the word ear now is translated from the same Greek word used in the first part of the verse. 
that will indicate it has the meaning of hearing. Same Greek word. Now this, this second time, we take the meaning of the Greek word as ear in the sense of auditory organ. Now despite the fact that the apostle did not use, uh, did not use the same Greek word he used in verse, 17, uh, verse 16 that clearly refers to an ear. Now the reason for taking uh, the Greek word as having the, uh, the meaning ear instead of hearing this second time is that such interpretation of the Greek word follows the pattern the apostle used in the verse we are considering. Now in the first conditional clause he referenced an organ of sight. An organ of sight. That's in this case the, the eye. Before he gave the rhetorical question that followed that is concerned with hearing. So he began with uh, a clear organ. Now following this pattern, we will expect that the apostle was thinking of an auditory organ rather than its function. In the second part of the verse, and so we are justified in using the meaning ear as auditory organ in the second usage of the Greek word in question. So, although the same Greek word is used, one, one part it means something else, another part means something else, or related, of course. So, following this, the same approach, the apostle used in the first uh, part of verse 17, he followed then the Conditional clause with a rhetorical question of First Corinthians twelve seventeen that we're studying again. Look at it. It says, "Where would the sense of smell be? Where would the sense of smell be?" Now the expression uh, "sense of smell" is translated from a rare Greek word or what we call hatax, the gomenum. That's a word that appears once in a given literature, so to say. So here is translative from that rare Greek word that uh, appears again only here in the entire Greek New Testament. It has the meaning of uh, sense of smell. Of course, there is another Greek word though that means smell or odor. Even that one appears also only once in the Greek New Testament in Second Corinthians chapter 2, verse 16. Second Corinthians Second Corinthians chapter two verse sixteen. It is to the one we are a smell. That's a Greek word that's very rare. Osme, osme. We add the smell of death to the other, the fragrance of life. And who is equal to such a task? So, the apostle didn't use this one either. Now, that notwithstanding, the Greek word the apostle used in our passage of 1 Corinthians 12 17, that means sense of smell, is concerned with the function of the nose. Again, we contain 
that the apostle is concerned with functional spiritual gifts in the body of Christ. Now his point, based on his uh, analogy, as we have previously uh, stated, is that there needs to be diversity in spiritual gifts so that the church will function properly by exercising the range of spiritual gifts the Holy Spirit gave to the church of Christ. The function of the church, there are several functions of the church. The primary function is, is missionary work. In other words, giving out the gospel, following with teaching of the word. That's the primary function of the church. But there's also the other part of the church, which is elementary, that is being uh, generous and giving and so forth. It's the function of the church. Now, in that part, you have to have people who have the gift of giving. In order for that to really function, I mean, believers will give uh, as a requirement uh, that the Lord expects from us, but there are, it has to be those who have the special gift of generosity. They have the gift of giving so that they will go beyond all others. Even if you have the same income, they will still exceed you in terms of their giving because they have the gift of giving. So, or gifts of generosity, if we may use it that way. Anyway, so, in order for that to happen, for the church to do its fun- carry out its function, there has to be, again, uh, the diversity of gifts. Of course, though, the apostle still implies that no member should consider the spiritual gift one has as unimportant in the church of Christ. Now, every now and then you might have an idea of what your spiritual gift is. But if you do, you still don't have to think it's very unimportant. Every spiritual gift is important. And no one should look down on the spiritual gift of another because the person thinks less of another person's spiritual gift. So in any event, the tough fact then, to help you understand the importance of unity and diversity in the body of Christ is that each member with the person's spiritual gift is necessary for the functioning of the local church of Christ or the universal church of Christ. So this brings us to the fourth fact that you should remember. A fourth fact to help you understand the importance of unity and diversity in the body of Christ is that it is God who places each member of the church in the church to function as he wants. That God is the one that places each member of the church in the church to function as he wants. Now this fourth fact is derived from what the apostle states in verse 18 regarding God's action about parts of the body that he used in his analogy of human body that applies to the church of Christ. See, 
Here is the thing that uh, many times, when we, if you just rely on the English Bible and no one is teaching you, there are just things that you just can never come out on your own. It's just impossible. Now, verse 18 is going to review one of those things. I will touch that sometime last week or so. That there are things that if you're reading with true understanding, if you're really reading through a passage of the Bible with understanding of what you're reading, you, you, some questions will come in your mind because of some of the things you're reading. And they may not be so intelligent to you because you don't have a way of explaining what it is. That doesn't mean it's not intelligent in a sense. So this is one of those things that we're going to see in this verse 18. The Apostle Paul so far, in his analogy, used the body parts and its parts to teach of the importance of unity and diversity in the church. Now, in doing so, he has used uh, superpositions or conditions that are unreal. Things that are just unreal. Now, see, in verse 15, where we're starting, he used the conditional clause, if the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body. That, you can indicate in a sense, that's an unreal superposition, because that's not going to ever happen. For one thing, the foot could not speak. Now, the same unreal situation is given in verse 16, in the clause where it says, And if the ear should say, Because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body. Now in verse 17, the apostle used two clauses that we just looked at. If the body were an eye, and then he said, If the whole body were an ear. Both express situations that are unreal and will not happen. Now, after telling, or after dealing with unreal situations, the apostle then moved to something that is indeed real, something that's possible. Everything we discussed so far, they're in the, in the realm of impossibility. Now, he did this all by the phrase that he used beginning verse 18. Of course, if you if you're very good, maybe, the Holy Spirit guiding you, you might catch the difference of what I'm just saying. All this time he's been talking something unreal. Now suddenly he's going to move to something that's real. Somebody has to labor in English to see that. But somebody who knows the Greek language and, uh, and is careful about it will notice just from the beginning of verse 18 that the apostle is about to deal into something that has to do with reality. Now, see, verse 18, in the Greek, begins with two particles. The first is a Greek uh, word, nuni, nuni, that may mean now, now, as an adverb of time, with focus on the moment. So, this is the way the apostle used that uh, Greek uh, word, nuni, as he defended himself against Jewish accusation before Governor Felix. 
as we read in Acts chapter 24 verse 13. Acts chapter 24 verse 13. It is, and they cannot prove to you the charges they are now. That's our word, Nuni, and you, and I, although you can really spell N-O-Y, N-I. See, they cannot prove, and they cannot prove to you the charges they are now making against me. Now, the Greek word, of course, can mean something like, as it is, as it is. Now, that's the first particle. The second particle, used in verse 18, is one that I've mentioned several times here. Yeah? It's a Greek word, de. It's just two, made of two letters, D-E. That may be used to connect one clause to another, either to express a contrast or simple continuation but in certain occurrences, the marker may be left untranslated. Now, although it's often translated but in the English, when there is perceived contrast between two clauses, but it has other meanings such as now, so, and so on, when it is used to link segments of a narrative. It can also be used to indicate transition to something new. Now the use of the meaning but appears more times though in the Greek New Testament to express contrast than any of its other usages. For example, it is a word used when Jesus contrasts what should be the right way to pray removing hypocrisy in prayer and making prayer being private are contrary to the Pharisees, as he stated in his Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 6, verse 6. Matthew chapter 6, verse 6. Now, these are some of those things that when you you think about it, you realize that... uh, uh, Sometimes when people get religious, they misapply the Bible. Now people advocate public prayers in public arena and so forth. I don't know, they, they really understand what prayer is all about. It's not something that an unbeliever should be involved in. Because you know, these days in this country, if you advocate for that, you don't know what kind of prayer you're going to get in public arena. Anyway, but really this is what our Lord, the Greek word is used to contrast what the Pharisees did to what we ought to do. He said, but when you pray, go into your room, close the door and pray to your father who is unseen. Then your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Of course, uh, We've studied this in detail, but just to re- refresh your mind, somebody may say, okay, why do we have a prayer in, you know, get a, in a local church here? Why do we pray there? That's not private. It is private. 
Why? Because there's a body. One body in Christ. So once we've got here, we close the door, whatever, even if we don't. As long as it's all believers. Then that we do not violate what our Lord is teaching. Because it's a private thing. We are praying as a body of Christ. And so we are directing our prayer towards uh, our Father. And therefore, it's not a violation of what our Lord is teaching here. Anyway, when the two Greek uh, words that we have considered begin a clause, the combined words in the Greek uh, that may be translated literally, but now, that's one way to translate, but now, could, could really be uh, interpreted in one of two ways. Now, remember I said there are two Greek propositions that we can translate literally, but now. But that expression, but now, or that phrase, can be interpreted in one of two ways. Now, the resultant phrase could be understood to mean, as the situation is, as the situation is, in which case, it, it could be translated, but now, or as it is. As a word is used by the apostle to recognize the situation he was in, in which he does what he didn't want to do, implying that sin, present as a force in him, was working in him in Romans chapter 7, verse 17. That is where our Greek uh, phrase really uh, is translated as it is. Instead of saying but now, it's it's as it is. So he says, as it is, it is no longer I myself who do it. But it is sin living in me. In other words, the person says, if I do what I don't want to do, (laughs) then it's not me. It is sin who is living in me that are doing all this. Now another interpretation of the combined Greek particle as a phrase is that the Greek phrase introduces the real situation after an unreal condition or sentence that precedes the usage of the phrase and so the phrase may be used to introduce the real situation after an unreal conditional clause or sentence with a translation, something like this, but as a matter of fact. But as a matter of fact. Or any other phrase that conveys in an emphatic manner that something that follows is, is real in contrast to the unreality of what preceded it. In other words, remember, I said the apostles so far Everything he has used in his analogy is unreal. Now he's going to get to something that's real. But you have to think twice to really get catch that. But those who study and know the Greek, if they, are, if they pay attention and not in a hurry to and just ignore everything, but if they pay attention, that they may say, hmm, that means the apostle now is signaling I am now going from something that is unreal to something that's real. 
Now that changes the whole way you look from uh, what, you, what is being said from then on. But in order to demonstrate this, I'm going to use a few examples to show to you that it's something that the apostle does, uh, or not just the apostle, but many uh, writers of the scripture, they did that in the Greek. Anyway, so the, this second interpretation is reflected when Apostle Paul stated what is the reality regarding the resurrection of Jesus Christ, as we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 20. Now he's dealing with something when one we see a phrase being used here, although it's just translated with birth, but the issue is the apostle is now going to go into something that's real. Now, by the way, hold on to that 15th chapter because we're going to pick up some few more verses from there. It is verse 20 of First Corinthians 15 reads. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Now, in this passage, the combination of the Greek words that we've been considering is rendered but indeed. But indeed. That's, that's the way it's rendered. But indeed, of in between, they're stuck in the other words, but it's really but indeed. Now, that is to convey that what is stated is real after the apostle has used two unreal conditions in his argument regarding the reality of the resurrection. He used two unreal conditions in, go back to the same chapter 15, look at verses 17 through 19. Verses 17 through 19. It reads, And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then also, and then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. Because by the grace of God, I'm sure it, uh, if he keeps us alive, in probably a year and a half we'll get to this particular passage. Anyway, now in this passage, there are two unreal conditions, at least, the apostles use. The first supposes that Christ was not resurrected. Look at that clause. And if Christ... In verse 17. And if Christ has not been raised. Now this states what is not true. But for the sake of the apostle's argument, he states what is unreal. Just for the sake of argument. Now again, he has, and I keep beating the dead horse as they say, to get you to realize that the Bible expects you and I to have this ability to think logically. Why would the Holy Spirit give, go through all this? 
through the Apostle Paul or through the other writers of the scripture. If it's not just one, two, three, there you go. There's something to this ability of being able to reason. Because that helps you in application of doctrine. Because if you're not able to reason things well, then when you hear certain things, you don't really know how to deal with it. But if you're able to, you run into something, it's okay, Father, you say this, you say that, now why wouldn't you do this for me? See, you're reasoning. If you don't have that ability, just, well, you know, he said in the Bible, and you go with it. He said what? And you just say, he said in the Bible, because you're not reasoning. God wants you to reason and throw his word to him and say, Father, you say this. I know you don't go back on your word. So, this is what I'm asking. In that way, he sure he never goes back on his word anyway. So, that's the thing here. So, the apostle, he takes something, he's arguing, he takes something that's not real. Because he says, and if Christ has not been raised, Christ has been raised. So that's an unreal situation. Now the second uh, thing, the second uh, supposes though that the believers have hope only in this life, as in the phrase where it says, verse 19, look at it, it says, if only for this life we have hope in Christ. Now, the scripture reveals clearly to us that we have hope beyond this life. So what the apostle states is something that is unreal. It's unreal. Now, we, here's the thing. Is, as we, the apostle mentioned, I will study it at the right time. If we, if, or if we don't have hope, we're really the most pitiful people on the planet. Really. If we don't have hope. Because there are so many things people are doing and we just walk away from it. Well, why not judge them? So, it's because we know there's something we're looking forward to. They are not looking forward to those things, so they do whatever they want. They don't think there is something coming, but we do know. And therefore, we are more careful in how we conduct ourselves, knowing something better is coming. So, here the apostle has stated two unreal conditions. So, having stated these two unreal situations, the apostle then proceeded to state what is real in verse 20 that we read, where the Greek phrase that begins our passage of study of 1 Corinthians 12 verse 18 that we're studying is used. So again, the combined particle of, uh, of these particles of Greek phrase is translated in the NIV as I say to you, but indeed in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 20. Now the English, I think the English Standard Version used, but in fact, and the, the reverse, the new reverse standard, I think they also use the same thing. Now the same use of the combined Greek phrasing is used in 1 Corinthians 12, 18 that we're studying, that literally reads, but now, that phrase is also used to describe the reality of the one sacrifice of Christ that settled forever the matter of sin, to, so to speak. As the Greek phrase is used by the human author 
of Hebrews. In Hebrews chapter 9, let's look at verse 26. That's my second illustration of where you see that. So you know you're going from unreal to real, just by a phrase that you won't catch in the English. Unless someone, of course, is very careful, read it again by the empowerment of the Holy Spirit as possible. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 26. He says, Then Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world. But now he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Now, although the Greek phrase that we're considering is translated here, but now, say, but now he has. That word, but now, nonetheless, it is used to state what is real. In that Christ appeared on this planet to die for our sins as a sentence against that he appeared once for all at the end of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Now this sentence, or this verse, is actually preceded by two unreal situations. Look at this Hebrews chapter 9. Go back to verses 24 and 25. Verse 24 of Hebrews chapter 9 reads, For Christ did not enter a man-made sanctuary. We've studied this in detail in Hebrews. He was not qualified as a human being to enter into this earthly uh, tabernacle as they have it because he was not from the tribe of Levi. He said, well, for Christ did not enter a man-made sanctuary that was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself. Now to appear for us in God's presence. No. Did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again? The way the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood that is not his own. Now the human author of Hebrews stated here two things that did not happen in these two verses. Now in verse 24 he indicated that Christ did not enter man-made sanctuary, which again I said he couldn't have done so uh, because he was not from the tribe of Levi. He was from the tribe of Judah. Now in verse 25, he also indicated that Christ did not enter heaven to offer himself in a repeated sacrifice. Now that's fact. Christ, and you know, that's some real thing to think he, he went in there for to offer himself up and down. Anyway, so after these two things that did not happen, though, the human author of Hebrews stated then in verse 26 what actually happened. That's why we, where he says, Bait, now he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. So, thus, it was fitting that the combined Greek phrase or words that literally means but now is used in verse 26 
of Hebrews 9, uh, chapter 9. Anyway, we have noted then that a combined Greek word that literally reads, but now, that is used in our passage of 1 Corinthians 12, 18, could be interpreted in two, one of two ways. As, a, one, as the situation is, or, but as a, as a matter of fact, to introduce a real situation after unreal conditional clauses. So the question is, in what of those two senses did the apostle use it in the beginning of verse 18? It is used with a meaning, but as a matter of fact, but as a matter of fact, to introduce then a real situation after unreal conditional clauses, so that the phrase of the NIV of verse 18, but in fact, they look at where they say, but in fact, that is really an appropriate way to translate it. But in fact. So, also, it is appropriate for the English versions that begin the verse with, but as a matter of fact, or something that expresses uh, the fact that what we or what is presented next is a reality in contrast to what has been said in the preceding verses. Now the reason for this interpretation is because from verses uh, 15 to 17, the apostle introduced things that were not real. But now in verse 18, he introduced that which is a reality. Hence we know that we are correct in interpreting that phrase that way. Now the real situation the apostle introduced concerns placement of the various parts of the body as in the sentence of 1 Corinthians 12 verse 18 that we're starting. Go back there. It reads, God has arranged the parts in the body Every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. Now, it is true that this sentence literally is concerned with position of the various parts of the body in a given body and their respective functions. But the apostle really is concerned with the church of Christ than with parts of the human body. Although he is making analogies using human body. That wasn't his concern really. But he uses his analogy to get to his concern that we can pick up what he's concerned with. Now this we can even learn from the word that he used, the word arranged. That word arranged uh, that is used in, our, in this when he says God has arranged. That word arranged helps us to even begin to see what he's dealing with. Now the word arranged is translated from a Greek word that may mean to lay or to put. That is to put or place in a particular location. Now this does, it was used for the burial in the sense of laying away or putting away the body of Lazarus in the grave after his death as per the question 
of the Lord Jesus Christ to his sisters. In John chapter 11 verse 34. John John chapter 11 verse 34 John chapter 11 verse 34 reads Where have you led him? He asked Come and see Lord they replied Now it is of course in the sense of lame uh, that the word is used also in the quotation from the Old Testament scripture regarding the stumbling stone laid in Zion that Apostle Paul cited I'm not going to read it but you can jot it down in Romans chapter 9 verse 33 Romans chapter 9 verse 33 now the word is used for Jesus Christ giving up his life for us in 1 John chapter 3 verse 16 1 John chapter 3 verse 16 He reads 1 John chapter 3 verse 16 where we know what love is all about He says this is how we know what love is Jesus Christ laid that our Greek word, that word laid here, is a Greek word, titemi. He said, Christ laid down his life for us. That's love. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. Now the word, the Greek word may mean to appoint or to assign to some task or to some function. As Apostle Paul used it to describe his appointment or his assignment that God gave him regarding the gospel of Jesus Christ. In 2 Timothy chapter 1 verse 11. 2 uh, Timothy chapter 1 verse 11. 